0: Hello, guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. But first, Father's Day is just around the corner, and I know you didn't get your dad a gift yet, and I know you didn't get your husband a gift, or your brother, who is also a dad, or your pastor, who is your spiritual dad. And if any of those guys have a beard, you should get them some beard balm from Catholic Balm Co. We talked about this stuff on our episode about uh, the the Chrism Mass. Uh, Our episode's called Catechrism. It's amazing. You can make your beard smell like the sacrament of confirmation. It is so lovely. In my personal opinion, that is the sweetest smell in the world. It's just so delightful. After my son Isaac was baptized, I tried not to wash him for like a few days. My wife eventually made me do it, but his head smelled so good. It was it was so amazing. Anyway, we are an affiliate of that company now. So if you purchase products through their website and you use our URL, We get a portion of that sale to help support the podcast. So if you want to get your dad some sweet gifts, just go to www.catholicbalm.co slash liturgy. That's catholicbalm.co slash liturgy. Do some sweet, sweet shopping and help us at the same time. That would be really great. This week, we are talking about a church document. We don't talk enough about church documents, I, I don't think. So this week we're talking about Musicae Sacre. It was a papal encyclical written by Pope Pius XII just before Vatican II. So uh, you can definitely see some correlations between the, the documents in Vatican II and the document uh, Musicae Sacrae. So without further ado, episode 40 of season 2 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy.
1: I'm going
2: to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. Buddy, some kind of ultra boy. And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, eh? Huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep.
0: The Liturgical Institute is proud to present the Liturgy Guys. Uh, all right, what are we talking Petrine Lineage? What are we talking about?
1: We're talking about Musique Sacre. Musique, Musique, Sacre, 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 <laughs> it really Sacre, Sacre, Sacre. And <laughs> Saturday. December 25th, 19, Chris. Fifty-five. Yes, you're a genius. Yes. Eleven, twelve <laughs> how p.m. Do you, how do you know these dates?
0: Just like right off the top of your Chris, brain. No, no, no. Chris
1: knows everything. He's just like encyclopedic like yeah, that.
2: I, I appreciate you guys propping me up that way.
1: I know. Well, somebody has to hold yes. your arms up. Chris was looking at our noteboard. Okay, so 1955. Just kidding. Is a little higher. A, we
2: don't have a noteboard.
1: Can Can you turn me my headphones up there? Yeah. Oh, okay. Ooh. If I can't hear myself, then boy, the world is not a good place for me. <laughs> 1955 is not long before what,
2: Chris? Mm, mm. Before he died?
1: Pius well, XII? Yeah, but also... Vatican II? Yes! Ding, ding, ding. Oh, I didn't bring the bell today. We should have brought the bell. Oh, man. Ding, 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 ding. Right. So what would you think would be the, inf- the importance and influence of, a, of an encyclical that comes out five years before Vatican II opens?
2: Mm. I would imagine that when Vatican II did open, they had their eyes on that encyclical pretty clearly.
1: Right, not just because it was the most recent one, but because the pope as when he writes an encyclical kind of gathers up what's in the mm-hmm. air and then presents it. So, you know, if we had Vatican III tomorrow, they'd probably be reading what Pope Francis just wrote, mm-hmm. what Ratzinger mm-hmm. as Pope Benedict wrote, and then what uh, John Paul wrote. those would be the issues at the ta- on the table at and, the time.
0: And this is not Musicum Sacrum.
1: Musicum Sacrum is a different thing. Okay. That's from 1967. And it's, is uh, it's it really? in March 1967. Yeah. Oh, it's, an, it's an instruction on <laughs> how is. to implement the, for
0: real, we don't have a noteboard. Chris just knows
1: this stuff. It's weird. <laughs> Everybody knows musicum sacrum from 1967. Okay, <laughs> and musicae sacrae disciplina disciplina. Is that 58? That's 58. What's the yeah.
0: difference in translations for those two?
2: That's what I say. What's the,
1: <laughs> What's the difference? I don't know. What what is the ae of sacred music? Right? Would
2: be. Yeah. I don't know. Read it.
1: What's well? That? The first line is the subject of sacred music, yeah. right? So yeah. that's the whatever case that is. The ae is always that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Ingenitive. how about musicum sacrum?
2: That might That'd be more be, than nominative. Uh, yeah, or um or, the, or something else. The, All right. Degenerative or Okay, whatever. but he yeah. th- this is an encyclical by Pope Pius the Twelfth in nineteen fifty five. And then nineteen fifty eight is the one you mentioned. Right. The
1: discipline okay. of sacred music. So that's okay. he that's and, not by him, that's okay. by his office by that, of worship
2: Okay, people. And then Pius Twelfth I think died in uh summer or fall of fifty eight, is that right? Probably and then soon John the twenty third. And then that next year is like fifty nine. He's like, boom, so he's we're going to have a council. Yeah, he's been Pope John twenty third, right? He was, you know, this older Pope they thought would just, you know, not yeah, really do anything crazy. He's like crazy. The Pope Francis of the 60s. Jo- he's been,
1: jolly old Patriarch of yeah, Venice. and
2: he's been Pope for like three months, and he says, oh, by the way, we're going to have a, we're going to have an ecumenical council. So I think that was January fifty nine, and so then the council starts in sixty two or something like
1: that. Right. So, the you know, not only is there inherently good content in this thing, but part of it is that. If you're going to interpret what Vatican II means, in some sense, you have to know what are they thinking. What are the theological ideas in the air what that would have it? fed
2: right into the council? Its proper uh, interpretive tradition? tool, hermeneutic. Hermeneutic of what is it? Uh, reform. Is well, that? hermeneutic of reform, right? Yeah. Right. So if you want, if you want, as you're saying. In, is, I should have just let you say it rather than interrupted. saying say it another That's way. That's all right, Chris. Want to, uh, you don't interpret- do that with me. You don't try to let me figure stuff out, Chris. <laughs> anyway, as I was saying about Dennis over here. Yeah, so if you want to interpret the council right, then you would have to look through the proper hermeneutical lenses, and this would be one of those things to bring uh, the, the council's teachings on sacred music into focus.
1: Right, and Pius XII was very interested in the liturgy, probably more than many popes, and he wrote Mediator Day in 19... 19- Forty-seven, seven. right? Which is the first encyclical ever card. on the sacred liturgy. Yeah.
0: That was the first time you got a date wrong, Chris. I get that confused with uh,
2: Mister. Christi. Oh yeah, me too. Yeah. I which is nineteen forty-three, three, yeah. right? Remember, those mixed up a that's lot. during
1: the, forty-three is during the war, and so it's about the mystical body of Christ and mm-hmm. how the countries of Europe are all the same body, but they're killing each other. And then later, he wants to write on liturgy. So you know, a few years later, right before the council, which I mean, fifty-five is a long time ago, right? It's you know, years. Sure seems like years. it. <laughs> but it's right in the air. And, um, you know, he's very interested in legislating what music should be, what it shouldn't be. He was really the first modern Pope. I mean, people called Pope John the, the modern Pope, but Pius XII was answering all these questions about war and medical ethics and liturgy and music and art, and even architecture. And many of his quotes are brought right into Vatican II, right into the text, sort of word for word and Media Today, which is an encyclical, is, is cited, you know, footnoted in Vatican II a lot. So what did Pius XII have to say? Surprisingly frank, right? In these days where there's a lot of words and you wonder what they mean, that's not how Pius XII <laughs> writes. He's like, boom, one, two, three, this is what I say. And, uh, you know, the beginning, like all encyclicals is general stuff that he wants more splendor and divine worship and more effective nourishment of the spiritual life among the faithful, which at first sounds a little vague, but, you know, I don't know if most people go to mass or music directors think, hmm, how can we nourish the spiritual life of our people this week? It's like, what's the theme or what song do we know without much rehearsal or what will the people like or what will not cause them to rebel if I (laughs) pick this, right? That's that's,
0: That's probably the thing that people think about most.
1: Right, the music director problem is how can I not make people angry this week with the music I pick? <laughs> oh. Which usually means that Sad but true. The middle sort of wins the day, and they're, they're, you know, excellence is sometimes pushed pushed aside because people can't handle it. But you know what, Pius the says right away is that music is a gift of a gift of nature, which God endowed um, human beings because He is the harmony and the most perfect concord and most perfect order. God has the most concord and order. And he gives that and shares it with us. And so because we're created in his image and likeness, we can extend that order and harmony out into the world through uh, music. So there's this really important notion. And he says that it uh, leads them to higher things. He calls it uh, something given by God's generosity with the other liberal arts that contributes to uh, this leading us to higher things. So We've talked a lot about symbolic mediation, and you know how does how does heaven come to us? It comes to us through symbols, right? How does something else come through the earthly realm? How does the order and and praise of God in heaven come through to our world? One of the primary ways uh, is in music, and then he goes through this. Oh, You're going to say, "No, something I was just going to thing? say."
0: It, it, this sounds a lot like the language in Sacrosanctum Concilium and, and the documents of Vatican II. That this is the this is the type of way that they're talking about. The, the 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 new translation and the new right
1: right and they talk about leading they was leading men's minds toward god and to the heavenly things
2: it, it reminds me of something that uh, Pope Benedict wrote somewhere. I think it was in the uh, the document after the uh, the year of St. Paul where we studied about the Word of God. and He talks about sacred music and its objective nature and how it plugs into the music of the spheres. That's what uh, reminded me of that, that oh, nature yeah. has its own uh, harmony and concord and symphony and everything working together naturally. And the point that Pope Benedict will want to make is that the music that we, the man makes uh, for the liturgy, must kind of be in tune with this objective character of uh, the music of the spheres. So it's not your subjective internal expression that matters. It's how consonant is it with this with nature's music.
1: Right. and The spheres usually refers to the planets and the stars. So they're they're moving, and so little Mercury is going around the sun and it's going fast and it's like a high pitch and the
0: actual spherical shape of the planets, but then also their path in space. Yeah, they circular
1: yeah. path. They're so, orbit. Um, you know, Mercury might be like a high page like this, right? And then Jupiter might be down here or something like that. And some other planets. And why are you smirking at me?
2: I've, that was Jesse's the, favorite, uh, uh, oh, yeah. memory as well. Oh, when, we talked like, about nature. The, the yeah. Planets were, the planets are yeah. going like this
1: or like this or like this. And then the lambs sing. Bah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, but even that has a pitch, right? You know, if your little lamb goes, bah, it's not bah, or bah, it's bah, right. And the two lambs together could be harmonious in lamb way. So anyway, so he says a lot. This is the, the pies, the 12th, I call it the pies, the 12th sort of two-step. It's like, Boom all these things are great. This is what God gave us, but boom We're not going to go too far over the limits. There's some problems. And so he goes through this long thing about Gregorian chant and the early years of the church and the the church fathers talking about music and how important it is and how important it is that this keeps growing. But then he says, there have been councils in different centuries, and he labels the names them that talked about excesses and taking the excesses out of the church and that uh, progress as the secular world thinks of it is not always the same as doing what's appropriate uh, liturgy. So... Uh, in paragraph 17 of this thing, he says, that's why um, the church has this desire that art remain within proper limits. And if you think about it, just at this time, this kind of free-form music types were out there trying to say, well, there's no objective standards for modality or harmony. It's all a social construct. So you've, you've heard a bunch of dorian.
0: I'm sorry, what is modality? I've heard you use that word before.
2: Have I? What is mo- yeah. What do I mean by modality, Chris? In, in terms of Gregorian chant? Yeah, the modes. I think what you mean is there's today... I th- we speak about major and minor, what are those keys? Called? Keys. Uh, before that, with a Gregorian uh, system, there were eight different modes that are now reducible, mm. basically, to so major So sometimes and you would sing a la mode? <laughs> you might. <laughs> uh, and he, but each mode uh, would have a certain, I don't know, uh, evoke a, a particular emotive response, right. you know, whether it's... Joyous or sad or somber or serious or lighthearted or oh, something are these like t- that. The
1: tones. Yeah. So it's an order okay. of notes. So our normal scale is do re mi fa sol la ti do. It's whole step, whole step, whole step, half step, whole, 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 half. Right. But mm-hmm. you can mix up that half and whole anywhere you want. So one of the modes is whole, whole, half, whole, 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 half. <laughs> If that makes sense, do re mi fa sol la ti do. And when you, as soon as you do that, you're like, "Whoa, I'm in some kind of other realm." Like whenever Fred Flintstone or somebody gets hit on the head in a cartoon, they go off into some dream and they're in the whole tone scale, which is do 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 do
2: do 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 do. Tennis is smart. And you don't know where they are
1: anymore. And so we're used to this one two three half. You know, one two three four half. But um, they're saying, that's not really... Some of the modern composers are saying, well, that's just because we're socially accustomed to this and there's nothing magical about this order of notes. And so I remember back in my freshman music appreciation class, they talked about this uh, composer who threw a bunch of notes on paper up in the air. I think I mentioned this in a podcast once, and then they had clear transparencies yeah, with the 5 literally, staff it. was on the it.
0: episode about the music of the sphere. Oh, it was? Okay, yeah, right. Let's so, get metaphysical.
1: So music is just as arbitrary as anything else, and so the different instrumentalists would pick up the notes, whatever notes they were, put them on their thing, and play whatever was in front of them that had no relation to anybody else, and so they created this cacophony, and it was the musical expression of chaos and all that. So, that would not be a liturgically appropriate thing, even though the artistic world might be doing that. So, that's why he's because calling... Because God chaos.
0: created something out of chaos, so it's moving towards order.
1: Right. And to go back to chaos is to sort of undo the, the proper glory of creation, to return to the beasts, you know, to the 666 yeah. is the number of the beasts, not because... Nobody wants a, that. It's about, <laughs> you know, buffalo or something. It's because we're reverting back to an animalistic... Uh, reality when we have intellect and will and the capacity to be like God is a reverse of the process we should be taking. Yes, Chris.
2: Uh, a little bit ago, you, you talked about something being restrained by laws or nature being restrained by laws or limits or something like mm-hmm. that. Do you remember that? Is, isn't that like a definition of what art is? Is creativity under restraint or under law or limit? And I thought I've heard something like this. Yeah, before. I don't know if that's an actual
1: definition. Maybe it's named out there somewhere, but creativity is always governed by certain Limits, right? You can say, well, Whitman, you, you know, you're going to use English, you're going to use English grammar, right? The limits are to increase that legibility and that intelligibility and hand it on to the next um, person so they know what you're saying. You know, remember the Pius Tenth all the way back in 1903, is talking about not letting anything profane enter the church. Now, the, only the churchly things belong there. And so, um, Pius XII, I think, sees himself in this line of these popes, and he goes through a whole bunch of popes who, I guess, maybe he doesn't want to be seen as the only cranky pope, so he mentions (laughs) mentions the other ones. He He mentions mentions friends. (laughs) He's like, "Hey, it's not just me. There's some (laughs) other people here too." And he says them by name: Benedict the Fourteenth, Leo the Twelfth, Pius the Seventh, Pius the Seventh. Who knows what he did? Gregory the Sixteenth, Pius the Ninth, and Leo the Thirteenth said followed the same line, basically you know, what your mother said it and I'm saying it too, right? They're all on the same uh, page. So, you know, talking about music here is that this contribution has to be something that's proper to the liturgy and and the liturgy has to be protected from any of these outside influences that would harm it, you know, which is not not a bad idea, right? You don't want random people coming in and, you know, interfering with the liturgy on your Sunday. And the same thing uh, with music. But he says, you know, flat out, this is the kind of thing, popes don't really talk this way anymore, but he said, in recent years, some artists gravely offending against Christian piety have dared to bring into churches works devoid of any religious inspiration, completely at variance with the right rules of art. That's intense. Yeah. It's not that complicated a concept, but it's a it's a fierce kind of statement. Why He, he gives an answer, and I know you don't have the text in front of you, but can you guess why... These artists would say that
2: they should be allowed to do this. Well, I, I wonder if it's the, uh, the spirit of the age, which is modernity, says that uh, it, it's operating off a different uh, foundation. That your own subjective expression is precisely what's uh, necessary if you want to worship or be authentic or whatever. And this whole line through the ages is just what modernity is trying to to get rid of. And so it wouldn't see, uh, you know, the the traditional historical arguments as appealing at all. Is that right? That's right. Objective. That was my answer, too. We we (laughs) huddled, and that's what we came up with. Yes, they
1: had a little team, team effort there. Well, what he says is these artists go on to say that artistic inspiration is free and that it is wrong to impose upon it laws and standards extraneous to art, whether they are religious or moral. (laughs) <laughs> since these rules hurt the dignity of art and place bonds and shackles
2: on the inspired artists, right? I, I probably brought this up before, too, but that line from uh, Chesterton, who talks about the free-spirited artist who's uh, without uh, constraint and can do whatever he or she wants to do, and he says that, you know, if you try to draw a giraffe with a short neck, you'll discover you're not free to draw a giraffe with a short neck because you're, you are, art is, is underneath these limits, and they have to be obeyed for it to be authentic. And it seems very much the same sort of principle that uh, Pius XII is mentioning here.
1: Right. And if you're going to build your little resort house in the mountains and you want to draw a giraffe with a short neck and hang it on your wall, fine. right? It's not really going to affect the world very much. However, if you
0: draw that short giraffe in a zoo, you are looking well, for trouble. Well,
1: yeah. Or if you do it in a scientific zoology book and present it, people think, well, you don't know what a giraffe is, right? And you're, you're actually misleading your, your giraffe range. to try again. When it comes to mass, though, this is this very important revealing of what God wants us to know about him and what it's like to sing around the throne of God in the heavenly Jerusalem. And if it comes across as not very good, then that's actually, uh, you know, can be harmful to someone's understanding of uh, worship. So he says, all this art has to go in relation, not to primarily to the inspiration of the artist, but to its ultimate end. This is a teleological argument. Do we believe in that anymore? Chris, tell, well, first tell us what is teleology? I remember telos. Oh yeah. Tell like the, tell us, tell us, tell us. Oh, oh man, you
0: guys are learning so well. Just like I'm learning from you. You're learning from me. Uh, the telos is the intended, um, uh, I guess I don't want to say use, but the, in- the intention of something. So you, uh, where you're headed or where you're, you're super, close,
1: what you're supposed to it's be. It's about your end, Jesse, yeah. your goal, your goal. Right. So Don't talk
0: about my end.
1: <laughs> everybody else <laughs> does. What the, it's kind of, what's the, what's the point of this, right? So the end of you know growing food probably is to eat at the end of planting a seed is to harvest that fruit. And so everything has that kind of a purpose. Or everything acts or. for an end. Yeah. And he says the direction of, of humanity to their ultimate end, that is God is something that he says not even God could exempt anyone from this law, right? So God cannot exempt anything liturgical from being teleologically oriented toward the glorification of God and the sanctification I thought there of was humanity. nothing God couldn't do. There are a lot of things God can't do, right? He can't destroy himself, for instance, and he can't blaspheme himself. Stop destroying yourself. <laughs> Stop destroying yourself. <laughs> and so the musician's job is to work to this teleological end right and so it it sounds it could sound a little cranky when you read this in recent years we've had all this music devoid of religious inspiration but actually what he's saying is hey world the standards of music in the world aren't are stepping away from what the church needs and so sort of calling them back how can artists and the church become friends again this will really take on take over will take no take off Yeah, some preposition. It'll take off in the 60s when they have all these dialogues between the church. The
0: liturgy uh, guys, where we can handle concrete and complex Latin sentences, but (laughs) our prepositions are a little
2: problematic. (laughs) But it's interesting that it seems this is an anthropological sort of question. And this, this seems to be a real confusing point today is what is man? Where does he come from? What's his purpose? What's his end? How does he live? And this is uh, the council's uh, great line from Gaudium et Spes is that Jesus comes not only to tell man about what God is like, but to tell man what what he is like and what his purpose is. And so, if today, if if the culture doesn't even believe in teleology, that man isn't going anywhere in particular other than by random selections and mutations and whatnot, then you have no teleology. And so, how can you... You know, develop a kind of a musical system that says, hey, it must be faithful to man's end when uh, does man have a particular end or a particular... Well, right, and even if people don't it, think
1: yeah. there is an end, they have an end, right? If my end is to prove there's no teleological point beyond me, that's a teleological, and it, and teleological it, goal, right? And, not,
0: mm. and it's not dependent on your own thoughts or opinions. Well, that's, exist, the, that's the they question. They exist in and of themselves.
1: Right, so what he actually mentions the phrase... Pope Pius XII mentions the phrase art for art's sake. That's a thing people say that art doesn't have to serve anything. It's just is for its own sake. So you, you know, put a bunch of things in in the town square and you blow them up and the pieces go other places. Well, we don't have to worry about what it's good for. It's just is. It's just art for art's sake. He says that this is uh, very wrong. (laughs) It entirely neglects the end for which every creature is made, which is God's glorification and their sanctification. And he says, it has either no worth at all, or it is a grave offense to God himself, (laughs) the creator and ultimate end. So basically to say, well, we're going to do something, but it's not really for anything except itself. I mean, if I said to you, Jesse, well, you're not really for anything except whatever I decide you're. Your end is, oh, back to your end again. Whatever uh, it is, we want to say that would not—that would be an offense to you, right? It's certainly offense. I'm often to offended
0: by what you say, so <laughs> well. That's <there's>,
1: okay, <laughs> that's one of my teleological <laughs> goals: is to offend you frequently. <laughs> that's
2: probably true. You're doing and, a good job, Dennis.
1: Thanks. Yeah. So he says an art, an artist doesn't operate by blind instinct, but um, according to. The laws of the church especially a liturgical artist right because the liturgy has its own rules and its own
2: laws back to this pope benedict line he says uh, uh or th- this document he says something like as far as the liturgy is concerned we cannot say that one song is as good as another in the liturgy everything the music the text the execution must correspond to the meaning being celebrated which is the mystery of god the paschal mystery of christ and so whatever you might think out there in the world as far as the liturgy is concerned it's acting teleologically it's trying to assist uh, man on his way to sanctification and uh, god's glory to that degree wouldn't it i mean we talk about using the
0: the texts from the mass you know the hymns and the antiphons that are uh, that come from the mass and i mean wouldn't those be the Ideal because they come from what you're actually doing. So they'd be, um, you know, the first choice or the ideal.
1: Right, exactly. So liturgical music has the most limitations, you could say, or it has to stay most closely to its teleological purpose. You know, if it's going to be liturgical music, it has to be liturgical. Devotional music then can spread out a little further. Popular music can be. You can write a song about your loaf of bread that you just ate and it's kind of funny but nobody expects you it to be You heard my about secret
0: <laughs> uh, loaf of bread track?
1: I have, yeah. Oh man. You remember, We were probably too young to remember Friends, the TV show Friends.
0: I remember the show Friends. Oh,
1: okay. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't born yesterday. You were still in diapers then. Remember, Phoebe used to go to the coffee house and she'd have hey, that Smelly cat. Talk, smelly cat, smelly cat. What yeah. are they feeding you, right? It's not about anything, and it's kind of amusing. And it's not your fault. Right. See, I know all the words. <laughs> right, exactly. So... In a coffee house in New York, you can hear a song about nothing, and it's kind of, you know, it's a it's a funhouse mirror for your ears, right? But when you get to the liturgical things, there's a, um, a particular goal, and he says it's supposed to beautify and embellish the voices of the priests who offer mass and the Christian people who praise the sovereign God. It should make the liturgical prayers of the community more alive and fervent, right? So if you're interested in the active participation of the people, it's not just busy participation, you know, hymn for hymn's sake or song for song's sake, but how can the people really find their place in the mystical body join their voice to that song of, of christ at the right hand of the father and do that more effectively so you know you can look at this in a couple of different ways oh cranky Pius the twelfth the last guy with the tiara and the, the funny oh and actually john the 23rd wore the tiara too but mm-hmm. you always see him carried around in the chair you know with that funny little pose with that little grim face but when you look at it he's very interested pastorally what does it mean for the people to have their souls moved to piety and uh, how can these things be preserved in the church? And of course, he goes back to Gregorian chant. That's the music joined with the church's liturgical worship itself. And that comes right into Sacrosanum Concilium. And um, there's a lot of stuff in here, but I know there's, we'll just recommend that people read it, right? You're yeah, we,
0: Well, yeah, we'll link to it for yeah. sure. So um,
1: Musicae Sacre, Encyclical of Pope
2: Pius Twelfth on sacred music. Put it in a sentence, Dennis. What's the one, ta- the important takeaway point from this?
1: That music is good because it's a sharing in God's own powers to praise him. He gives it to us. It's a capacity. We can use it well or not well. And then he gives some rules on how to use it well. If it glorifies God and sanctifies us, then you're on the right track. If it's just the expression of whatever I feel like that day, then you're probably all on the wrong track.
0: That was a nice really support. long sentence, but yeah. I think... Not that was good at prepositions, but lots of punctuations. Yeah, it's, it's a run a on. Colons. a run-on for sure. But the
1: same the thing is true now, right? You have a hymnal in your parish. You're the music director. You can actually say, instead of, oh, what's the one we all know and people like, you can say, what's the one that's going to most edify the uh, people today? Splendor. That's going to bring heavenly realities and perfection, and the angels and saints singing around the throne of God, how can I have my people hear that today, instead of just sing the song they like?
2: Yeah. Well, you wonder how many choir, uh, as you said, rightly, I mean, choir directors have a, uh, of a big task, uh, but you wonder how many ask themselves that very question. I mean, that, that's the that's the question that should be asked.
1: Right. A homilist would probably say, oh, if I prepare my homily, I want to move people's hearts and minds to understand what this scripture is about. I think a music director or a composer could ask the same question. How can this sound like heaven? How can the words be profound? How can I lead people to participate in the choir of heaven? Um, and so he, he ends this by what St. Cyprian says, uh, let the sober banquet resound with psalms. If your memory uh, be good and your voice pleasant, approach this work according to this custom. You give nourishment to those dearest to you if we hear spiritual things and sweetness that delights the ears. And that's it. Good words sung beautifully make people say, oh, yeah, I want that too.
0: I think we should sing a liturgy guy question and we should sing the answer beautifully. Should we? Should we?
2: Should we? Should we? We should. (laughs)
1: <laughs> barbershop liturgy guys
0: oh so you guys know that we love the liturgical institute and we love everything that we do here but you know who else loves the liturgical institute yeah bishop robert Barron. and guess what he has to say about it
2: well i've known the liturgical institute from the very beginning i was at mundelein on the faculty in 2000 when it started i knew monsignor Mannion very well who was the founder uh dr McNamara, who was with him from the beginning i've known we become good friends, I've spoken many times there. I've known all the faculty members, I've known many of the students. So I, I know from the ground up what the, um, the LI does. And they introduce people into the beauty of the church's intellectual tradition and liturgical tradition. And um, I don't know in the country a better place to go to get immersed precisely in that aesthetic dimension and the intellectual than the LI. So, you know, I'm a big fan.
1: Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone?
0: All right, this question is actually another question from Annie
1: that we got last week. Wow, Annie number two, who's yeah, really the know, same one. Yeah, you know, I felt a little generous because
0: I really like this question, yeah. and to be honest, I kind of wanted to know the answer. So, uh, so this question comes from Jesse <laughs> and Annie. We both, we both want to know. Jesse and Annie. So uh, we, Jesse and Annie say, can you, ex- <laughs> can you explain why the bishop sometimes wears his miter or zucchetto and other times takes it off during mass? Now I, I know that he does it, um, and I am somewhat familiar about when he does it, but I don't necessarily know why he does it.
2: Because the rubrics say. All right. When when it come? Dan, what's a miter? A
1: miter is a big pointy hat with little flaps on the back. Looks like a little mini stole. That okay, that signifies the office of bishop.
2: Doesn't okay. And what's the zacchetto?
1: That's the little uh, skullcap kind of thing that you see on the pope. It's often you know it's usually white for the pope, mm. um, red for cardinal. I like
0: call sort of them Catholic yarmulkes. Purple for a bishop.
1: Yeah, that's not they do called. look like yarmulkes. Yes.
2: All right. So when does he take them on? Take them off? Put them on? And
0: why? He takes the mitre off whenever he sits down during the liturgy, perhaps. Before mm-hmm. the gospel? No, he, he wears the, it during
2: the reading of the... Uh, All right. The, he
0: takes it off. Well, he definitely takes it off before the consecration.
2: I think he actually... Yeah, no, yeah the, the little server usually it. comes up and goes, pluck and takes and then it the right off. So oh, that's the, the, well, yeah, the ziketto, ziketto, right? Well, he right.
0: takes both of them off during the consecration.
2: I think it's when he talks to the people, he uses the mitre. And that mm-hmm. signifies sign his office his, and authority. Right, okay. right. When he talks to God, so during orations, opening prayer... Closing prayer, when he's saying things to God, he takes it off. The say, mitre. The mitre, yeah. As a sign of, uh, I suppose, of respect. You know, back when men used to wear hats and you'd walk into a house or you'd take greet someone. Take your somebody. mitre off! You would take your, your hat off as a sign of respect to the person you, <laughs> were, you were speaking with. And so during the Eucharistic prayer, not only does he not have the mitre on, he also takes the zucchetta. Zucchetto? Zucchetto. Which Uh, means little pumpkin. Does it really? Yep. Zucco. Nice. Pumpkin. But he takes that that off. Probably because it's it's an especially intense uh, prayer uh, addressed to the Father in the name of, uh, in the person of Christ.
0: All right. Well, I guess I misrepresented myself about any type of knowledge of any of this, so.
2: Yeah, no, it's uh, a little confusing. Uh, MCs know it. but yeah, I mean, when, it, when they go on and off is one thing, and that can be confusing. But the reason behind it, I think, is it's because I, I suppose culturally we're not hat-wearing people. And so we've, mm-hmm. we've kind of lost some of the, what the meaning might be. But I suppose, I still think that's maybe the best way to look at is, is it's a sign of who, who whom, to whom the, the bishop is speaking, whether it's the people or to God. When he speaks to the people, the mitre is on. When he's speaking to God... As a sign of his humility and deference, the, the hats come off.
0: Yeah, and when they take the mitre off, the, the MC or the acolyte does like this weird hat, hat trick. And they like flip it, and then the, the little Can tails he, go around. Yeah. He also, I think it
2: says he uh, uses the mitre whenever he administers a sacrament. So whenever oh. he's confirming, for example. Uh, I he might've heard that
0: before. Yeah, uh-huh. if you
2: wanted to know, you would look in the ceremonial, uh, ceremonial of, of bishops. bishops, and it right. would be very particular about when it's on and off.
1: All right, All Annie right. and myself, and believe you, it or not, Paul VI in 1968 put out a motu proprio about the use of the zucchetto. Hello, motto. So we, we someday can look that up. All right, Annie
0: and Jesse. Annie, thank you for asking this question. Thank you, Jesse. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Jesse. Thank you, Jesse and Jesse. If you want to ask a liturgy question, you can email yourself at liturgyguys.com. Questions at liturgyguys.com. Or you can tweet. You can tweet yourself. At liturgyguys. At liturgyguys. Don't tweet DMAC a D. It's a bad idea. Nothing will happen. Literally nothing will happen. And uh, thank you and God bless.
1: The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.